Welcome to Orthodox.Faith. I am John Harmon. And this is Ron Bentley. And in this episode, we're continuing our walk through 1 Corinthians 15 and the larger discussion that we're having about resurrection and the Christian faith. That's right. As we were talking about the early part of the chapter last in the last session, Paul offers an account of the basic message. And you may recall that that account includes a summary of Christ died for our sins. He was buried and then he rose again. Well, now Paul is transitioning to a concentration on the topic of resurrection. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is closely tied to our own hope as Christians. And Paul's going to address those who have raised some questions about resurrection. I I found, Ron, a poem recently that I had all but forgotten was out there. It's a poem called Seven Stanzas at Easter by John Updike in 1960. And the first of the seven stanzas goes like this. Make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's disillusion did not reverse, the molecule re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. Love it. There's some really striking imagery, and that's that's really Paul's point in this section of 1 Corinthians 15. Without a resurrection, our faith is not sustainable, right? That's exactly right. Earlier in the book, earlier, earlier in this first letter to the Corinthians, Paul had said that the message was foolishness to the world. That, that was, was his question, or foolishness to the Greeks, I think he actually said. Uh, he doesn't mean to say the message is actually foolish. What he means to say is that the logic may be opaque to the rest of the world, but that doesn't mean it's illogical. Paul is about to lay out an argument here. So let's go see what that argument is. Well, we're going to dive back into the text. And in this episode, we're going to pick up where we left off in the last with 1 Corinthians 15 verses 12 to 34. That's the next major section in this chapter. And we just encourage you, as we did last time, to have a a Bible open to 1 Corinthians 15 so you can follow along in the text if you can. If not, you'll still be able to follow this discussion very easily. But where we pick up here is with a, a question that the Apostle Paul raises And it seems that Paul, who knows this community well, remember he planted this church and he's keeping tabs on them from elsewhere at this point, Uh, he becomes aware that there are those who want to have a Christian faith without the miracle of resurrection. And he deals with that here in this section, doesn't he, Ron? That's exactly right. And in fact, the way that he kicks off this section in verse 12 makes it pretty clear. This uh, we're, we're finally getting the meat. We're, we're getting what Paul was driving at. And, and he poses the question this way. He says, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead. So it's very clear at this point, he's addressing some questions that have been raised by some of the people there in the church and in Corinth, and they're asking whether resurrection is a real thing or not. And as Paul plays this out, if you read through it too fast, you you lose the import of his of his argument here. He really, and, and it almost sounds circular if you just scan through it real fast. It's not circular. Paul's making some some real observations here, and he starts off by saying, "If there's no resurrection, then 
surely that means also that Christ wasn't raised from the dead. All right. And if that's true, if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, as far as he's concerned, there are two two consequences of that. One is the message that he and others brought to the church in Corinth, the one he just summarized in the earlier verses, that is empty. It's it it's in vain. And he goes on to say that the second consequence is your faith is in vain. So if if what the message we delivered to you isn't true, if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, then we were we were spouting nonsense and you've bought yeah. into it. Uh, <laughs> but he goes on to say that as, as he plays out this argument, uh, there's there's an even worse consequence as far as Paul's concerned. What's more if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, then effectively he's saying we lied about what God did mm. because we came in and told you this is something that God accomplished. And if this isn't true, then we are misrepresenting what God did. And for Paul, that's that's no small, no small mistake to make. Yeah. There. In fact, when Paul gets to verse 17, he plays this out by saying, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, he, he says to the Corinthians, your faith is futile or meaningless or vain or empty. You know, something that's interesting about that term empty or meaningless that Paul chooses here is that it's the exact same term that's used in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ah. When when the author of Ecclesiastes says over and over again, meaningless, meaningless, yes. or vanity, vanity, all all is empty, all is meaningless. That's what that, that term means, is it just has no substance. It's just empty air or, or, or vapor. That's, that's the word that Paul chooses to use here when uh, when he uh, talks about a faith that essentially has no substance at all. That's striking language there. In fact, for those who haven't ever encountered the book of Ecclesiastes, you ought to go take a look at it. Just pop it open, and from the first sentence, you may be asking yourself, wait a second, is this the Bible? <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. the, the author just uh, is emphasizing the absolute inanity, the, the the emptiness that he perceives around him. So yeah, that Paul would reach for that. And, and it's curious that Paul cites two things that he thinks expresses this emptiness. Uh, one is that the Corinthians' faith is futile and that they have not escaped from their sins. So these two things are the things he's saying are consequences. If we don't have Jesus, who has been raised from the dead. But this all comes together. And just before he gets to verse 19 and verse 18, he had referred to the fact that those who have died in Christ have perished. In other words, uh, once again, this hope that presumably the Corinthian church had, it's gone if there's no resurrection from the dead. But the key in my mind, and maybe a key to this entire chapter, is what happens in verse 19. It's there that Paul says, if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Yes. In other words, if, if we're just telling ourselves a fairy tale about what happens after the end of our lives to make ourselves better, feel better, to make it easier to confront death, maybe, uh, there's not really any hope here. And Paul hmm. indicates he has no interest in this story. Hmm. So he says, when he says we are of all people most to be pitied, I take it 
to mean if we're just spinning yarns, if we're not talking about the powerful work of a God who takes direct interest in us and works directly in our physical lives, then we are deluding ourselves. This, this whole thing is worthy of nothing but pity. So you either take this or you take hopelessness as far as Paul's concerned, but you got to pick one. And Paul is convinced the hope is real. So that brings us to the next section in this part of the chapter, verses 20 to 28, where Paul opens with this observation. He says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul is definitely looking forward. He's, he's looking forward toward a future that has a present hope to it. And we, we really see this come out with the use of the word first fruits, because okay. that's deeply rooted, as so much of, of Paul's uh, writing is, is deeply rooted in the Old Testament scriptures. He understands all of this in terms of what the Old Testament has to say. And first fruits was part of the Old Testament uh, offering, the Old Testament sacrificial system, where, where uh, those who were growing grain uh, or um, or other produce would would bring the first of their harvest in to offer to God and what okay. they were doing symbolically in 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 presenting that was not taking the first for themselves in order to hoard it or to hold on to it in case it didn't get better in case more didn't follow was to surrender that in faith and recognize the guarantee that this was only the first of much more that would follow later and that's really the connection that he makes with Christ, that Christ's rising from the dead, Christ's own resurrection is the first of what is guaranteed to follow. That's surprising. And I wonder, it's never occurred to me that in this case, the gift is God's. <laughs> Prior to this, the first right. fruit gifts were from people. Uh, this gift that Christ offers is a gift that God gives. And it is curious that Christ now presents that first fruit offering. Mm. Now, in the subsequent verses, John, he goes on to talk about death coming to us through a human being. Since death came through a single human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. Uh, and goes on to that famous phrase, as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. What's he talking about here? What's going on with this analogy? Yeah, well, this is more of Paul processing all of this through the lens of the Old Testament. Okay. Uh, and he does this, actually makes this parallel, this analogy elsewhere. He does it in Romans chapter 5. This isn't the uh, the only place in the New okay. Testament that we're, we're, we're going to see this connection for him to make. But it's it's obviously clear from the Old Testament that the, the Hebrew understanding here was that what happened through one man, Adam, right. could affect the rest of the world. Okay. So he points out that the same thing has happened again through Christ. He didn't need to argue, in other words, that, that it was possible for what happened through one man to affect the world because it was already understood. It was already established in, in an understanding of Genesis that, that this was possible. So he doesn't need to really take that any further. He right. simply reaches for that parallel and that analogy. And because Paul is pointing out that something is possible in real time and real space, he really can't be moving from the purely mythological 
to the physical and historical. Okay. Just to just to, just to sort of take a little bit of a of a of a side path here to point out that Paul's making analogy that does require us to recognize that there is a time when creation fell. All right, I'm listening. But that that doesn't mean that we have to read Genesis 1 through 3 as anything other than the kind of literature that it is. He, okay. he's, not, he's not changing what Genesis is or how it communicates what it has to say to us. But we, we really can't overlook the fact that Paul is setting a boundary on our understanding of Genesis that sin is real. Okay. It is not mythological. And it entered into the world in a real sense. All right. He, he doesn't give us any room here to label Christ's work as a real solution to a mythological problem. Fair enough. But he's not, he's not suggesting that the story of Christ's death and resurrection are the same kind of story that have to be read in the exact same way as Genesis 3 at the literary level. Okay. All right. They're, yeah, fair enough. They're very different kinds of stories. Uh-huh. But the specific parallel that Paul makes is a powerful one that we should we should be able to appreciate when we read both ends of the parallel here in 1 Corinthians. So for Paul's analogy to work, there has to be a fall, and the fact that we are all subject to sin has to be true. Exactly. Paul just makes it very, very explicit that we must take seriously the the reality and the presence of the fall and of sin in the world. After making these observations, Paul goes on to suggest that there is a specific order here. There's a sequence. The uh, Christ comes first. The resurrection of Christ is the first fruits, and then those who come after are, are those that are in Christ, to use Paul's terminology here. And and he uses this as the bridge to transition into talking about the end, literally the end of the world, which right. we've had occasion to right. talk about before. And as soon as he starts talking about that, he starts quoting the Psalms of all things. <laughs> <laughs> so again, John, what's going on here? It seems a curious place to go yeah. in his argument, but he focuses on Psalm 8 and Psalm 110. Okay. And and again, we can't miss the fact that he is processing all of this through the the lens of the Old Testament. And it's almost his, like he couldn't tell the story without the Old Testament. <laughs> I, I, I think you're right. I think you're right. The feature of the Psalms here that he's really locking in on is how he understands the Messiah. So he's pulled in Genesis. He's pulling in uh, the Psalms. A little bit later, he's going to pull in Isaiah. We're really getting a really getting a, a, an Old Testament trifecta. Oh yeah. In, uh, What's in the this, trifecta uh, again? <laughs> uh, well, Genesis, Psalms, and Isaiah. Okay. Um, Isaiah's going to come up in in just a little bit here in okay. this section. But all of this is informing what he says about the end. Okay. And and about the hope of resurrection that we have. It's very forward looking. Okay. And and what it does is reminds us that Christ's resurrection is part of a larger story that looks toward and actually has a specific future. The Old Testament hints at at that future in places, and it brings all of this out specifically with references to the victorious Messiah who ultimately came as Jesus of Nazareth, who was the Son of God. That messianic feature of the Psalms is really what Paul is highlighting here when he points forward toward the end, toward the work of the Messiah that would come uh, at some future date. 
while we're here, it might be worth just plugging that we have a series coming up on the Psalms specifically. And I personally think it may surprise some people what's there in the Psalms. Can you tell us just briefly where we're headed on that? Yes. In our next series, we're going to sample some of the Psalms and and look to them as different ways that God invites us to express what's on our hearts to him. So we're really excited about where we are headed from here into the next series. So we have one more episode in this resurrection series, and then we'll be headed off to the Psalms. As Paul is talking through this here, and he's referring to the Psalms and that messianic hope, he does mention that, well, I mean, one of the one of the roles of the Messiah, as I understand it, is to deal with the nation's enemies. And he, Paul says, the last enemy is death. And yes. in fact, as he goes through this language of the time that's coming, there are essentially two categories of things. There are those things that are being destroyed, and death is among those things that are being destroyed. And then there is a category of things that are being made subject to God, uh, but they're being made subject to God by first being made subject to Jesus Christ. And, yes, and both of these are are visible in the Psalms that okay. that uh, that Paul surfaces for us here. But curiously, Paul goes on from there to uh, to talk about something to do with the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Um, what's uh, what 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 dynamic is he getting at here with the with the end of this paragraph? That is a very good question. And for those that are familiar, later on the church will will formalize this understanding of the relationship between the Father and the Son. We say that we worship one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In fact, it was very important to those who made this argument that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were, in the words of the time, equal in majesty. So it is it is interesting that we see Jesus the Son being made subject to the Father here. The corollary to that Trinitarian statement was a Christological statement that in Jesus Christ, we have one person of the Trinity who is fully God and fully human. Paul never expresses his understanding of God in those particular uh, ways Although a lot of people were convinced that that understanding is, is about the only way you can piece together everything that Paul does say, as well as the other documents of the New Testament. And what Paul does say here is that Jesus Christ, as fully human, enters the created order shares physical humanity. In fact, he is the one through whom humanity has been restored. Thinking back to that analogy between sin enters the world through Adam Uh and uh, resurrection comes through Jesus Christ. So in this, to the extent that Jesus is fully human, Jesus himself shares the proper subjection, if you will. The, the, and subjection may not even be the right word. The proper ordering of the universe in its response to God, looking back to its creator. And this leads up to the way that Paul's going to close out this section, where he says that the goal is ultimately when everything is subjected to the Son of God, the Son of God is subjected to God. And uh, the goal is that God may be all in all. And a lot of people found that phrase quite striking and would ask, what does that mean? And at least to the earlier generations of Christians, they felt like if 
the phrase God will be all in all means anything. It at least means that we reach the point where there is an absence of evil and death. As we transition into the next section of this passage, this is verses 29 to 34, we get to the difficult bits. And it's difficult Mm -hmm. for a couple of reasons. One is Paul says some things that we just flat don't fully understand. We'll talk about that first. And then as Paul goes on, he says some things we do understand, but that are hard to swallow. So uh, let's walk through those right quick. First, Paul kicks this off by making an argument to the Corinthian church, asking if there's no resurrection of the dead, then why are there those in the church who are receiving baptism on behalf of the dead? That catches everybody by surprise. (laughs) We're not aware of that practice going on anywhere else. We're not even aware that Paul ever recommends the practice. For all we know, this is something that's idiosyncratic to Corinth. Uh, But in any case, Paul seems to have trotted it out at this point in the argument just because it makes a point for him. Uh, Here's something you are doing in your congregation that makes no sense unless resurrection is something that's real. I'm glad to know that I'm not the only one that has trouble with uh, understanding that particular verse. (laughs) It's always been a tough one. Yeah, I don't think anyone wants to weigh in and claim that they know what's (laughs) happening there. But Paul does go on to say, why are we suffering now? Why are we putting up with the difficulties we're putting up with now if there's no resurrection? And and he lays out some of the things that he and others that that are messengers in the church that are bearing witness to this. He, He lays out some of the trials they've gone through. And he wraps it up by saying, if there's no resurrection, then hey, let us eat and drink for tomorrow. We, we shall die. <laughs> That's going to be our attitude if this isn't here. But yet again, we have another quote of the Old Testament, don't we? There's, there's Isaiah uh, okay. popping up. We mentioned a little bit uh, earlier that the, the actual context of, of, that, okay. of that verse uh, is, uh, is important because there Paul, uh, God gives Isaiah a, a prophecy against Judah against Jerusalem okay. uh, at a time when uh, they have only a catastrophe. There's difficult days uh, okay. uh, coming their way. And, and instead of answering God, God's call to repentance, the, 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 the people of Jerusalem are pictured as living in a fantasy of denial about okay. what is real and about the difficulty and of the outcome that they face on the basis of their faithlessness. So here, Paul incorporates that to say, that it, yeah, if there's no resurrection, then just like the ancient Jerusalemites, I'm living a lie. I'm living in futility. Wow. He does go on to say, don't be deceived. In other words, he doesn't he doesn't think that's the way things really are. And and he trots out something that's actually not quoting scripture. He says, bad company ruins good morals. Mm-hmm. This is this is curious. Uh, he, he's gonna explain that by going on to say there are those who do not know God. And he seems to be suggesting that you gotta be careful if you're seeking to understand who God is, if you're pursuing this appropriate relationship with God, you've got to 
pay attention to what people are saying around you. But when he cues this up, uh, and some of the translations, they seem to soft pedal it a little here. They say, come to a sober and right mind. And the, oh. the impact in Greek seems to be more of sober up. Oh. <laughs> come on. Okay. So, sober up. Come to grips with reality here. And as far as Paul is concerned, the reality is that the resurrection is real. But he does seem to pose a bit of a question there, especially with this beware, bad company ruins good morals. That leaves me with a question. Jesus was accused of hanging out with the wrong kinds of people. What is Paul saying that we ought to do here? Yeah, Paul's putting kind of a general point on his whole argument by saying that rather than try to pursue a Christian faith without resurrection, what we should do is uh, and and maybe we can look back to John Updike's poem that we <laughs> okay. that we opened the episode with in stanza four. He says, rather than than try to claim no resurrection, let's just embrace fully what resurrection means to our faith and to our lives, and embrace the hope and the power that 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 gives us by, in Updike's words, walking through the door. Walk through just, the door. Just embrace it and go with it and walk through the door. So let's review where we stand here. When Paul gets to this point of the chapter, he has directly addressed some objections from people in the church in Corinth who didn't just question resurrection. They asked whether resurrection existed at all. Paul's answer is that resurrection is no mere metaphor and it is non-negotiable. Our own resurrection is inexorably tied to Christ's and the ultimate end is that we see everything subject to God. Yeah, Paul keeps our focus throughout this chapter on the fact that resurrection is at the center of our faith, but it still at the same time has a much bigger context. The resurrection of Jesus, our own future resurrection, and how we live in the hope of our resurrection are all part of this bigger picture of bringing to pass of God being all in all. Do you see the argument here? And to use Paul's words, this may seem foolish to some, but it's not intrinsically foolish. If the witness that the original Christians bore to having seen Jesus raised from the dead is true, then there are some exciting consequences. One of those consequences is the hope for our own resurrection. But the next question and the next stop for Paul, so to speak, in this chapter is, what does that resurrected form look like? Mm. Now, we as teachers don't always like these particular questions about the details. We're sometimes tempted to say, you know, this is as far as I can go. (laughs) Uh, Paul chooses not to do that. Yeah, in our in our teaching experience, I know we've both had uh, the the questions that that want to press the details uh, far beyond what we're able to say from the text, and and we just have to te- have to let go of it at, at at that point. But this is not one of those points, is it? Uh, no. Paul Paul's going to wade right into the answer uh, to that question in the final section of this chapter, and the result is a fascinating peek at what Christians can hope for in the future when it comes to our own rising from the dead. And that's where we have to wrap it up for this episode and where we'll pick it up in the next episode. For more information about this podcast and our other activities, please see our website at orthodox.faith. That's O-R-T-H-O 
docs.faith. Thank you for listening. Thank you.